Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Your co-hosts, Jamie Albright and Sarah Rosette, couldn't be more different. In fact, they're a study in contrasts. However, despite all of their differences, they agree that sharing what they wish they'd known, both the good and the bad, is the key to moving forward. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright, and today we have an interview with Kate Nolan, and she writes Southern Small Town Romance. So she's from Mississippi, and y'all, if you uh, are not from the South, you might want to get your hick to English dictionaries out, because (laughs) there's a lot of Southern in this uh, episode, and uh, I noticed my accent getting thicker as we talked. (laughs) It was such a good episode, though, and I really enjoyed it because um, there. I just really felt like there was a ton of good information in it, mm-hmm. and but I didn't know Kate before, mm-hmm. and I feel like she's like this long lost cousin that I'd never met. We have so yeah. much in common in like the way we write and the things mm-hmm. we do, and so yeah, you a guys lot are a lot. You're, you're very similar in your the way you process and the way you yeah. do things. Yeah. yeah, and Kate's just so so smart. Like she's yeah. so smart and. Um, not just business smart, like she's intelligent. And she has a master's degree, all kinds of degrees. Yeah, she's a research psychologist. And, um, but anyway, so it was a fun interview. I can't mm-hmm. wait for y'all to hear it. But, yeah. um, and we talk about burnout in that. Yes. And I think that's going to be really helpful. And we talk about writing through tough times. And we mm-hmm. recorded it just right when we started going into all this self isolation mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of that will be really relevant. Yeah, I think so too. Speaking of (laughs) self-isolation, so I'm writing um, a story that I'm putting out in my newsletter like a chapter at a time, and it's called Love, Quarantine, and Other Inconveniences. So I love that. Yeah, thanks. It's pretty fun. I actually saw a tweet um, that said something to the effect of, don't go to a guy's house for a hookup right now because you know he doesn't have any sheets on his bed. He doesn't have any toilet paper. All he's got is some hot pockets and some cheese puffs, and you don't want to get quarantined there. So um, that's what that sparked the idea for this it. story. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's what this story is about. He, uh, she she starts out at that guy's apartment, but quickly leaves and <clears throat> but gets quarantined in this building. So oh, that sounds so, yeah. so good. And just, I think everybody's thinking about stuff like that right now. And right, right. I think, and I think putting it in your newsletter is really smart too. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to, um, I mean, I really don't know that this book will ever be for sale anywhere, but um, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to give something to my readers. Um, and so every time the, the newsletter goes out, there'll be a new chapter. So it's not going to be a fast thing because, you know, mm-hmm. I don't write real fast. But but it's also not going to be very long. So, yeah, you know, because yeah. we can't it, really. And it will help you, like, process some of the stuff that's going yeah. on. Like, I yeah. think a lot of us, that helps us to write about yeah, it. Yeah, it does. I mean, so. you know, for most of us, that's how we, that's how we process our feelings is through yeah. our writing. So anyway, yeah. that's what I've been doing. And uh yeah, watching Tiger King. Um, mm, 
Y'all. I have resisted. I have not watched Tiger so, King. I don't I know mean, if I can. It's it's a train wreck. It is a train <laughs> wreck, but it's hilarious. Um, so that, and then our family, because there is no, uh, there's no sports, we're, we've been watching the family feud and rooting for our favorite families. <laughs> well, I heard that there's all these uh, sports that are like, wouldn't, wouldn't have been considered sports before now. No, and, uh, no. but people are really into them. And, uh, one of them was, um, marble racing. Apparently there's a oh, YouTube funny. channel with marble racing. I haven't seen it. Yeah. No, that's yeah. hilarious. Well, I know yeah. JJ Watt and his brothers have a, uh, show coming out. I think it's on Fox sports called ultimate tag. And I don't think it was supposed to come out maybe until the fall mm-hmm. or the summer, but they've, they've pushed production. I mean, you know, they pushed up the, um, I guess production of it, it's, it's produced, but they're putting it out because there's no sports on TV. Yeah, I know. So it, this will probably be the best rated show <laughs> in America. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Tag. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know. So yeah. what about you? What's going on? Uh, well, I have a release coming up on the 21st mm-hmm. of April, and I think I'm going to do the same thing you are, like sending stuff in my newsletter, but I'm just going to mm-hmm. take the first couple of chapters of the book yeah. and just send it out maybe for the weeks leading up to it, by the mm-hmm. time this goes out, it'll, that'll be really close. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought about trying to move the release date, but I thought, no, it's been on pre-order for mm-hmm. six months or mm-hmm. five months or something like that. So I'm just going to put it out and see how it goes. And mm-hmm. So working on that and we've had to stop. We were going to the park to go for our walks, but we can't mm-hmm. do that anymore because people are not social distancing in the park. I don't understand mm-hmm. this. They're not getting on, not moving away. So We've switched. We have a, a path kind of that goes behind our house. Mm-hmm. And normally you can't walk back there because it's like gets all overgrown. But some angel person has mowed a path with a big mower. Oh. So we can walk. In, and then on each side of it, there's all these wildflowers. And they're just beautiful. And so, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So it's uh, that's a nice been a nice break for me to get out and look at some flowers. <laughs> it's very, yeah, very therapeutic um, right now. You know, I walk in my neighborhood, so it's really not, you know, it, even if there are a lot more people walking than, mm-hmm. than um, have been, but we, you know, just moved to the other side of the street. Yeah. You know, well, we had people it. that they wouldn't shift over, mm-hmm. and I was like, just, you know, we can't yeah. keep doing this, you know, no, so we had to no. find something else. So. Yeah. yeah. So that's been good. It's been a challenge, though, and if you're out there and you're fa- you're feeling like this social distancing thing is a challenge, then you're not alone. Um, I think even introverts are beginning to go a little stir crazy. But uh, and I told my family today, gosh, I just miss going to Starbucks, mm-hmm. not for the coffee, but just to sit in a room with other people that I don't know. And they were like, "Thanks." <laughs> <laughs> it's funny the things you learn to appreciate that you didn't exactly. really appreciate. You know? Exactly. Like, just being able to run out to the store and pick something up or exactly. run to meet friends for lunch, you know. Yeah. We haven't got to go to lunch in, it feels no, like about forever. six yeah. months, but know, it's only been about it. four weeks. I know. So. It feels like a long time. But I guess we should get on with the interview. But I did want to say that if you guys, like, we'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, if there are things you like, things you wish we did differently or um or if you just want to tell your friends about it, we'd love it if you tag us. Um, Sarah's on. 
Facebook and Instagram. And I'm, she's mostly on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. So yeah, give us a tag. Sarah was it and Jamie Albright. Um, We'd love to hear like what you think. If you Mm -hmm. want to hear from certain people, we've had some suggestions and we've been able to get a hold of some people. So we'll have Mm -hmm. some new interviews coming up with people that were suggested guests Mm -hmm. and um, send us a message or take a picture of what you're doing. Like if you're baking, or mm-hmm. <laughs> walking while you're listening yeah. to the podcast. Yeah. Let us know. We'd love to Let hear us from know. you. Yeah, we would. All right. Well, here's the interview with Kate. We're super excited to have Kate Nolan with us here today. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, Kate. Hello. Yeah. So thanks for bearing with us with our tech issues. We're having some uh, issues with connectivity because everybody in the whole world is on Zoom and the internet. <laughs> So anyway, but we're really glad you're here. And would you start us off and just tell us a little bit about um, what genres you write in? Sure. Um, I write predominantly in contemporary romance with a heavy emphasis on small town romance set in the South. Okay. Very good. And you write some contemporary, you write some romantic suspense though too. Well, yeah, I've got a series that I would classify as like romantic suspense light. Okay. <laughs> uh, for, for like hardcore romantic suspense lovers, it's not going to be as suspenseful, but it, it, it's a spinoff of my Wishful series, which is a very happy, fluffy place. So, uh-huh. you know, I couldn't bring like serial killers and horribleness <laughs> to there without really violating the, the town that I had created. So I have, I have a light romantic suspense there, um, but I'm, I'm doing some exploration uh with some more mainstream romantic suspense actually with some stuff that i'll be talking about later cool um how'd you get into writing like have you been one or were you one of those kids that wrote in journals or did you i was i was not a journaler um i actually this is i started writing when i was 12 um as I, i met my best friend adrian uh back then in the sixth grade and it's been so many years, I cannot remember why we decided this was a good idea. <laughs> By the end of our first phone call, we decided we were going to write a book together about a pair of sisters whose their dad owns a summer camp. And we worked on this thing in like our little three subject notebook <laughs> every year for a number of years. And then she kind of fell away. And of course, our characters aged as we did. Uh, and uh, writing was not her thing. But I did discover that it was mine. And so uh, it was something that I did kind of all the way through growing up because I was an only child. I spent a lot of time by myself and never had a problem with that. I'm highly introverted and perfectly capable of entertaining myself. And uh, so it was kind of one of those things that, that I did and I loved doing. And I wanted, I actually submitted my first book for publication when I was 15. Mm-hmm. I still have that rejection letter somewhere. Oh um, but I didn't take it seriously as a career because it was sort of one of those things like my parents were like, Oh, Hey, you're really talented. Great. Now go get a real job. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> and so I said, fine, I'll finish my master's degree. And about the time I was, I was finishing that up. I'm like, nothing in the world is going to make me happier than being a writer. So I just said, okay, fine. I'll be an overachiever and do everything. Yeah. And so I was 25 and working on my master's thesis. And uh, when I, when I finally kind of made the decision, okay, I'm going to start treating this like a job. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably when I really started. I mean, I'd written all along, but it was when I started writing professionally. Yes. Uh, and when kind of that? going all along that. What hmm? year was that? 2005. Okay. Oh, yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. 
I mean, not like <laughs> that's forever ago. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> no, I just mean you've been doing this a while. That's amazing. Yes, I've been I've been self publishing since two thousand and ten. Wow, that's great. You were yeah. like one of the first ones. I was, I was, I was out there in the wild west of uh, indie publishing in the very early days. And it's been really interesting to sort of see how everything has evolved and all the people that I started with who fell off the map, you mm -hmm. know, the, the few that are still going yeah. and it's, uh, there've been a lot of changes in the industry. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. That's one of our questions. <laughs> so, um, so what was your first big success? Well, I guess that kind of depends on how you define success. Um, and so how do you find, define success? <laughs> for, for me, the, the part that felt like the biggest success was, because when I got started, uh, actually, with the self-publishing back in 2010, I was working three jobs oh and God. writing. And uh, I had like just, I'd finished, finished graduate school and I had taken a research position and I was working two different teaching jobs online and writing around all of that. And so the first really major success for me was when I started earning enough that I could quit all of my part-time jobs and be down to the full-time job and writing. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's a great feeling. It was. <laughs> I had been doing it so long and I emailed my department head and I said, I'm not going to be teaching next semester. And he emailed me back at me like, Oh my God, is everything okay? I'm like, no, everything's fine. I'm just, I've paid off everything I wanted to pay off. I'm taking a break. He's like, oh, okay. Congratulations. <laughs> it's all going according to plan. Oh, that's awesome. That's so great. Well, um, what do you wish you'd known about craft, the, the craft writing? When oh, that one's easy. Yeah. Story structure. Yeah. <laughs> Story structure. Because I, I spent years thinking, well, I need to learn how to plot for efficiency's sake, you know, because I had very limited time to write. But it wasn't that I needed to learn how to plot because everybody's you've got the whole pantser plotter thing. I am a reformed pantser, uh, but it was I needed to learn story structure. And I found um, Larry Brooks story fix website years ago and then his book story engineering. And it changed my world okay. because it taught me the pieces uh, that I needed to underpin any plot, no matter what you know, you're writing. Mm -hmm. It's basically it's the least I need to know in order to create that create the skeleton that the story adheres to. Yeah. So I highly, highly recommend it. <laughs> okay, we'll put it in the show notes because uh, I'll want to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so what do you wish you had known about marketing? Kind of taking it to the other side of the oh, writing life. Oh, on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish that I had been kind of more strategic about how I wrote my Wishful series. It's my like flagship series. There's 12 books. Um, and like from a marketing spec perspective, series do best when you have like a very clear group ability factor. So you've got like a group of brothers, group of friends, siblings, whatever. Wishful started kind of on a whim because I was originally in paranormal romance. And I started actually with Be Careful, It's My Heart, which is now book three. Uh, it was <laughs> it was this total sort of one off. I love White Christmas, but Bing Crosby's White Christmas, the movie. Mm. I watch it every Christmas one year. And, and I was probably skating with some burnout at the time because uh, I was chasing New York and doing all this kind of stuff with my paranormal. And I wanted something completely different. And I decided that it would be fun to write a story about a community theater production 
of White Christmas and basically do a retelling of the story against a, yeah. a community theater production of the story. And so I, I created Be Careful, It's My Heart and uh, fell in love with the town. And I'm like, well, I need to write more of this. <laughs> uh, and so I went back and started at the beginning. But as I went through the series, I just kind of wrote whoever I felt like writing about, which meant I didn't always have like good hooks to pull people from one couple to the next. And then I wrote some stuff out of order. And I've, I've since kind of fixed the chronology and reordered the books and I've added a scene or two here and there to kind of seed better. But I, I definitely see a clearer and better sell through on my Misfit in series where it was immediately following one sister after the next, a very clear, yeah. you know, grouping factor. Uh, and other than that, probably like the value of rapid release as a strategy. Uh, because I took so long, I was limited with my time. I took a long time to write stuff. You know, I would write it and drop it and go. And then to, to the next the idea of, waiting long enough to bank things to do that very strategic release very rapidly is not something that I understood the value of at the beginning. Right. And I think that it's a really, if you can do it, I think it's a, a really valuable thing. I ended up doing it sort of by accident last year or maybe it was the year before. And I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. Now I see why this is a thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wish I had done that before. How did, do you, you, how did you release the books? What was that? How did you release the books? Which ones? The ones you did rapid release with? Um, let's see. I think I ended up doing dropped one a month. Oh, okay. Um, I had, I had, life had happened. My, my Wishing for a Hero series got started back in like 2016. And then I didn't touch it for two years because stuff. And uh, so I ended up coming back with like a novella, a novel, and then another novella really quickly. Uh, and ended up getting like a book bub on the first one. And the sales went through the roof. Wow. which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So do you try and do that now? Is that your plan? Like to write stockpile and release incrementally or what? Well, what's the best case scenario? In other words, this is, this is one of those do as I say, not as I do <laughs> uh, with, with my Kate stuff. Um, because over the last couple of years, I've been sort of fighting with burnout. Um, that has not been what I have done. I am working on an experiment that I hope can launch at the end of this year where I am doing that. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all have that. We all have the, the plan, plan yeah, A. Yeah. And then we end up doing like plan F or D. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career that you look back now and go, no, those weren't right. Or that was right. Or, you know, so many. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd be writing full time in five years. Uh, yeah. uh, that was definitely not true. <laughs> I lost, I like, I lost all momentum on my paranormal romance. I'd actually, my paranormal was actually doing very well when I started in the very early days of self-publishing uh, to the point that I ended up landing my agent without ever writing a query letter. Oh, wow. She found me. Um, but it kind of got me off track of self-publishing because I was pursuing New York at the time. Uh, and so when I got out of that and I started over contemporary romance, it was much slower growth. I missed that big boom in like 2012 and all that, which I'm actually okay with. Um, so it's been you know slower growth than I expected. And it really kind of changed my mind about what factors I felt like I needed in order to quit my job. And given the lack of stability in terms of what might happen in our economy with all of the craziness currently going on, you know, I'm, really happy to stay where I am and have somebody else pay for my benefits for a while. Because I do know Kate and she is so level headed in my opinion, so level headed about this business. And, and now I know why I mean, you've been in for, 
you've yeah. seen a lot and but she's very level-headed if we're in a group and if any things start getting a little crazy she's always the voice of reason and so um and i think that's awesome and i think it's because though you've you've kind of seen things you've weathered things you know how to you look at things in the right perspective yeah. and so i think that's great it also helps that I've, I've always sort of marched to the beat of my own drum. There's, I've never been mu much one for doing what everybody else is doing because a lot of people were doing things that either were out of my reach because of time or money or whatever. Uh, and so I've not concerned myself so much with trends. And I think that also makes it very easy to kind of wait and be like, okay, let's stop and breathe and think and break it down yeah. from there. Yeah. Um, in terms of other stuff that I expected, I thought that New York would continue to make foolish mistakes, and they have. You know, they persistently <laughs> run publishing around the old paper models, even though that's not where money's actually being made, which is foolish on their part. And there's there's a lot. They're, they're in the paper business. They're not in the book business. And it's not being run anymore by true book lovers. And the ones that are in the, in, uh, you know, the New York publishing houses that truly love books are hamstrung by all the business people who don't care. Yeah. And Very so you true. see a lot of, you know, you see a lot of like mistakes, like that whole thing. And actually I think they just repealed it, but McMillan banning libraries from buying new, new releases because they thought it was going to cannibalize sales. It's like, really? Yeah. Are, you, are you serious with this? Uh, and I just saw something about that having been repealed since mm -hmm. all of this craziness started, but I mean, it took months for them to do that. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing that assumption that I made, I thought that I would eventually be able to dial up to nano level productivity every month. And that's a no, big no. <laughs> I have way too much else in my brain and pushing myself to get to that is one of the factors that really led me into the burnout that I know you guys want me to talk about later. So, well, that's actually yeah. our next question. So why don't you tell, tell us kind of what um, led up to the burnout and like what happened once you were in it and how'd you get out? So, okay. Well, I, you know, as I said, I started doing all of this. I was working three jobs and gradually like, amping up how much I could write. I am uh, I'm a researcher by, by trade. And so I am big into data. I've got a, an Excel spreadsheet that goes back to 2010, tracking my daily word count all those years. So I have like data saying I can do this much in this span of time. And it made me, it was great for a long time because it enabled me to really figure out, you know, with reasonable accuracy, how much I could write in a year which was great for production schedules and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, year after year after year, I wrote more and more and more. And I put out, you know, more and more books and to the point that I think I had one year where I released eight books. Um, and oh my gosh, that's a lot. It was. <laughs> and then I finally got to this sort of point where there was a lot of personal stuff going on. Life was happening and it was this sort of major upset. And suddenly my brain was too occupied by the real life stuff to sink into story and lose myself. And the idea I, I went from writing about 450,000 words in a year. And I think last year I cleared maybe 225. And that was really hard for me because it felt like going backwards. You know, I'm like, I have all this data saying, no, no, I should be able to do this. <laughs> and uh, it was a massive, I, I, I'm a big fan. I know you guys are too of Becca Symes, uh, mm -hmm. Finder course and all that. And I ended up taking Write Better Faster. I took Finder, and she was the one who was like, you're in burnout. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, it's I'm a new thought. This now. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I've, I've actually gone through two rounds of this in, in the last kind of couple of years. Like part of what I had discovered, I am number one input. And for people who aren't familiar with this, people who input are constantly taking in new information. In my case, it's like reading and podcast research and that sort of thing because I'm also a high learner. <laughs> <laughs> and um, because I had sort of limited time, I'd gotten to the point where I was using reading as a reward for getting my words in. And if I didn't get my words in, I wasn't reading. And that was basically like saying, you're not allowed to breathe if you don't get your words in. Um, and so I wasn't, I wasn't inputting. And so I, my, my well was just dry, you know, and people with input wells, we have wells that are 95% bigger than everyone else. And so as soon as we figured that out, Becca was like, you're not inputting. I'm like, okay. And then I think I blew through 200 books that year uh, because I'm like, I need to read all the things. And then I was like, great, I feel better. This is good. I'm moving out. And then I sort of kind of went through another round <laughs> because I, I tried to push myself back to do what I used to do. And it was my, my coach was finally like, look, you were able to do the things that you did in the last 10 years because you blew through 10 or you're basically a lifetime of reserves. You will never right. get that back. Right. And it was I mean, it was kind of brutal, but I needed to hear it because it's true. And that was really, really hard for me to accept because. I have the data. I the data says I should do it, and I'm, I'm, I've had to really work my way through a lot of sort of emotional pain of realizing I will not be able to go back to writing eight books a year. It's just crazy, right. and uh, so I'm, I'm finally sort of making peace with all of that and coming back to a more sane level of production and trying to be, you know, work smarter, not harder, right. yeah. with the whole thing. But I, it's like every. Every third writer I know, probably more than that, is going through some form of burnout because, you know, we're constantly pushing ourselves to work harder and to work faster and to do all of these things to gain visibility in a, an increasingly flooded marketplace. And we're making ourselves nuts. It's true. You're and certainly not the only one. Lots of people are going through this. Well, so. yeah. I went through it in November and I don't, I wasn't putting out eight books a year. Y'all know I don't write very fast, but it's, but it's not even about, it's not about the words you put down. It's about, to me, it was about all the energy I was giving this business and yes. then life was like pounding at me and yes. I, couldn't, it, I couldn't divide my energies and you know, my real life has to take precedent over yeah. You know, this over your fictional friends exactly. absolutely and so uh, yeah and it i mean i really literally got to the point where i would sit in front of the screen and just go i have nothing to write i, I have yeah. nothing and yeah. which is horrible that's a horrible feeling so it's yeah. terrifying because like we we i know i at least and most of the writers i know like we explore the world and we kind of process the world through writing Yep. Right now, I'm I'm waiting to see, you know, how many love in a time of quarantine romances are going to hit the market in the next like six months. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, and to, to, to reach a point where we can't do that, mm -hmm. it means we've got all this stuff sort of trying. And if we're not finding another way to get that out, whether it's like therapy or coaching or whatever it is, then we're sitting there just sort of stewing in our juices, which is one of the worst things you can do psychologically. Yes. And then it just sort of like continues this perpetuating cycle. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. I think we, like you were saying, you had the data, you know, about, yeah, I should be able to do this. And we, we don't like changes in the market, but we know the market's going to change and there's going to be trends and stuff. But we, 
don't as easily accept that we're going to change or that our life is going to change. And that impacts what we can do. And, you know, there's just certain seasons that you just can't do what you did five years ago or, you know, and then sometimes things calm down and you can just like accelerate and be very productive, but we just can't assume that it's always going to be the same. And I have to accept that too about myself. I'm not, I want to write my words and get them in. And some days it just isn't going to happen, you know? Yeah. So I found for my own purposes that mentally I do better when I don't have that. Cause I used to have that expectation of like, I'm going to write every day because I do better when I, when I can, because mm-hmm. I'm able to like keep, you know, keep my brain in the story yeah, for, for a longer period of time. But when I sort of, I set myself a goal uh, somewhere years ago, right? I was like, I'm going to write 20 days out of 30. That is my sort of like low bar. I can do that. And I'm not even, not even worried about word count. Just I'm going to write 20 days out of 30. And most of the time I do more than that. Mm-hmm. But when I is like, because I have that sort of grace period in there when life happens and I can't because, you know, I have to do something with my kid or I have to do whatever it is, then I don't have that resentment because I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Right. Which is so and I, trying to trying to build in, you know, sort of that grace in our schedule is much better than beating ourselves up over not having this perfect situation. Right. right. Yeah. And I think when you have that mindset, it's easier than when life does come at you with stuff to process both things. Like, yes, I went through that in November and then I did sort of what you did. I came back in January mm-hmm. going, I'm going to, and then I was like, I'm not ready, but I have been this month really doing well. And a lot of stuff has happened. I mean, this whole quarantine thing, things with my kids and but I've been able to kind of process both of them a little bit better and it hasn't mm-hmm. thrown me off track. And I, the only explanation I have is because I don't have all those expectations on myself anymore. I just yeah. writing because I love to write. I love to tell stories and the rest will take care of itself, but it's hard yeah. to get to that point. Really hard. There's this, there's this whole concept that was uh, by Karen Horn. I called the tyranny of the shoulds. And it's huh. this whole idea that we, get very, very trapped in all of these things that we should do. Mm-hmm. And we, they're, I mean, they're, they're shackles yeah. and mm-hmm. we, we can let them lay us down or we can let them go. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's particularly hard to do for women because we have so many things that we are intrinsically and implicitly supposed to do right. according right. to society or our family or whoever it is. Right. And so those, I think those are some additional layers, you know, third shift mental load things that contribute to, uh, for women in particular, you know, heading toward burnout. Yeah, exactly. Well, in November, I started seeing a therapist and she, so I sit down and I tell, I should be doing this and I should be doing this. And this is what, and she said, why should, like, is there a rule? I mean, does somebody, is somebody saying you have to do these things? I'm like, no, but the, they're doing them. And she was like, QTP. I mean, she was like, she just looked at me and I went, Oh yeah, they're, you know, and it's taken me a while, but you know, it's sort of that thing of too, do I want, it's my choice. Like it's my choice. If I want to work that hard, I can, but do I want to do that? And so for me, that's helped me too, knowing Mm -hmm. that it is my choice. If I'm not doing what other people are doing, you know, I can change it or I cannot Mm -hmm. and be, and just be happy with what I get done. And so, yeah, it's crazy. It's this business, especially right now, is just 
that can is. make you a little crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we wanted to ask you because you're a uh, research psychologist, right? I get that right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're a research psychologist in your non-writing world life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what recommendations or ideas would you have about writing in stressful or trying times? Because, you know, some people will be able to really focus and write and other people won't. So what advice would you give? I think this is going to be very dependent on kind of how you're wired. Um, Some people need that stability, need that consistency of routine. So, you know, if you're one of those people, try to make that routine, try to adhere to that, even though, you know, a lot of us are working from home now with a house full of kids and husbands and dogs and whatever. Um, Maintain whatever sense of normalcy and, and create a routine that you can, because you'll, you'll feel better for, for having that. But not everybody's like that. You know, some people need actual stability in the world. And obviously we don't have that right now. And mm-hmm. if, if that's you, then chances are trying to push yourself to write through all of that is just going to stress you out more. Um, and in that circumstance, I would say have like, you know, a cookie project, something that you wouldn't ordinarily be working on, but it doesn't have a deadline, doesn't have any. Uh, it's just for you, right? Yes. You know, something, something that's just for fun because you need, you need, you need the fun and the light, whatever version. I mean, you could be writing terrible post-apocalyptic zombies right now. That might be your thing, whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, don't, if, if, if trying to meet deadlines right now in the middle of chaos is stressing you out, then give yourself the grace not to do that. If you have, you know, the span, if you're somebody who is working for traditional publishing and you have a legit deadline and you're worried about not meeting it, then talk to, you know, your people and mm-hmm. find out if there's any room in the schedule and things to move. Cause I suspect there will be, because there's going to be a whole lot of things that are changing Yeah, that we, you know, don't even know about yet. Um, but the, the biggest thing, because I've seen over the last few years, and actually I think I talked to Jamie about this, I've seen so many people go through major life stuff, you know, whether it was a medical thing or something going off with family or, or job, whatever, but like serious major emotional trauma. And then they're beating their head against a wall, trying to finish whatever book they were writing at that time and not getting anywhere, even if the thing itself has passed. And what I have kind of observed is there's almost this post-traumatic stress of mm-hmm. that experience that gets attached to that book, whatever you were working on when the thing happened. And I know quite a few people who have not been able to go back to whatever that was, because I mean, in actuality, you are no longer the same person who was writing that book because you had this fundamental change in who you were because of what you went through. And so a lot of, a lot of writer friends that I've had, like my recommendation to them was to, you know, step aside, go work on something else. Because if you can work on something else, that kind of shows you've still got some stuff that you need to process around whatever the thing was on that original book. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a lot of that kind of thing around all of this, you know, COVID-19 stuff. So, you know, if you are not absolutely bound to some kind of deadline and it's going to stress you out trying to meet it, then don't. Give yourself some grace to figure out what the heck's going on with the world. I think that's so wise. I think it's just, I think we all have to just sort of take step back and look at what's important and what's not important. And And sometimes the things that we think, like I prided myself on always making my deadlines because 
I, you know, when I started, I was traditionally published and I always made my deadline. I wanted to be known as an author who was, you know, good to work with. And I had something like that happen. And, you know, like I did not want to change that deadline and let them know that I wasn't going to be able to write that book. But Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, what's the worst that could happen? I could lose my contract. And even though that's bad, that's not the end of the world, you know, and it's like, I have to reset my own mind. And so like, if I have to move a deadline, it's okay. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, the most awful thing in the world, even though we don't like it, you know? So a lot of it's our own mindset that we make our stress worse on ourselves. I don't know how to say it right, but we just, we make it worse than it has to be sometimes. Yeah. Well, we also, I think we have this implicit contract with our readers and we are freaking out yes. about the idea of not making them happy, not continuing because, you know, they have supported us through our mm-hmm. careers and, you know, we appreciate them. And what I have found, and this is what I did when the crap hit the fan in my life, I sent them a very honest and vulnerable email saying, y'all, this is what is going on in my life right now. I cannot finish this book. It's going to be delayed. And most, most people were really amazing about it. And the like one or two people who were kind of jerks about it were not really my readers to begin with. And I really didn't care if they left my list. Yeah. Uh, you know, by and large, readers are nice people. <laughs> you know, and we, <laughs> and we need to. There are books to, for them to read. It's not like. Yeah. <laughs> I, even if I wrote fast, I could not supply them enough books for my readers because they just read so much and so fast. So, yeah. Exactly. I, that's really good. So what, what things have you seen like that you used to do that you don't do anymore because you think that's not worth my time? Um, let me think Facebook parties, like anything that involves excessive time on social media. Like I've never seen any conclusive data that it sells books. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are various and sundry passive means of getting your name and your book covers out there that don't require that same amount of hands-on time and effort that are probably going to have a bigger impact on your bottom line. Um, for, for me personally, pursuing traditional publishing, you know, I, back when I started this in 2010, I only intended to put out some novellas to build an audience for the series I wanted to sell to New York. And then I kind of walked that path for a while and found out that the entire ecosystem of traditional publishing was incredibly toxic to my creative process. Not to mention I've watched them continue to make really dumb business decisions year after year, like DRM. And the thing with the libraries, charging out more out the yin yang for ebooks than paperbacks. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so clear that decisions are not being made by book people, but by, by business people with no understanding of publishing or readers. Uh, and, you know, with the fact that there's a, been a shift in marketing such that authors are more responsible for their own marketing no matter which path they choose, mm-hmm. it just seemed kind of foolish to me to split my profits with any sort of middleman when I can do just as good a job hiring freelancers and get my books out faster if I'm staying on the indie publishing track. Uh, and then covers. Uh, I taught myself photo in the beginning. I taught myself Photoshop and I'm, I'm better than adequate, but I can finally like really afford a truly talented graphic designer. And there is no substitute for that kind of <laughs> polish. There's not. I yeah. love Lori, Lori Jackson. She's my cover artist. She's amazing and glorious and I will never go back. <laughs> <laughs> covers are amazing i mean they they just exactly tell what your books are about like you look at your covers and you know exactly what you're getting they're amazing yeah they're really great i love them so um 
What mistakes have you made that you that turned out to be a good thing? Um, let's see. Probably, and this is going to seem weird, mm-hmm. um, but not jumping on the ads bandwagon or worrying about promo stacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like this was one of those areas where I didn't follow the crowd. I didn't learn Facebook ads and Amazon ads and BookBub ads when everybody else was. Like I built my entire fan base. And reached a six-figure income using nothing but paid newsletters and free forms of promo. Wow. Um, and my tactics have always surrounded, you know, the long tail. Consistent promotion that to drive, like, natural spikes in the sales cycle. And just remembering it's a long-haul game. And so it's about a sustainable level of income instead of ranking. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm wide. So that makes it – ranking is kind of irrelevant for me. That's mm-hmm. a very different business in KU. Um, but, like, my method is they're not flashy. They're not getting me at the top of bestseller list, but from a making a living standpoint, they're very, very effective. Um, And then probably going free too early. The Uh, prevailing hmm. wisdom is that like you don't put the first book free until you have like three or more titles and wishful. I think I put the first book free when book three came out um, with Misfit in. I did it as soon as book two came out because book three was supposed to come out and then life happened and I just left it, you know, perma free for years. And like I've given away two million free books. Wow. Across multiple wow. series since I started. And I've, it, it, a lot of people look at those as lost sales and that's not the right way to look at it because yeah. there is no guarantee that any of the, you know, a bunch of those people would have bought it, but it meant I've had a ton of organic growth from my fan base without spending a dime on marketing for a long, long time. And eventually I hit a real tipping point in the size of my organic fan base that combined with the massive eight book a year <laughs> output, <laughs> uh, like really pushed to this massive exponential growth in my career. So you know, I was, I had the luxury to do that because I had a full-time job. I was not dependent upon my writing income to support me. And so there were a lot of business decisions that I was able to make and really invest my money back in the business uh, that I wouldn't have been able to make otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. We had an interview with Nathan Van Koops and talked about how he, writing is not his full-time income and it gives him flexibility and mm-hmm. ability to do different things that if it's your full-time income, you may kind of be hamstrung in some ways. It's yep. a different perspective that I don't think we think about a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, that was free book that goes to read through like you're, you know, I mean, we were, we did a podcast earlier and um, we were talking about read through and when you have a free book, especially if you're wide, then that just, like you said, it's organic growth of people. So mm-hmm. people who get it and read on, those are the people that really love your books and yes. you're just looking more hands. So I think that's really, that that's so smart, but I see what you're saying. You felt like you did it a little bit too early, but then it turned out. Okay. Well, I mean, every, it was kind of one of those, like they say yeah. that you don't do it this way. <laughs> and I, I didn't really listen to what, I don't know that I even knew that they were saying that when at the time that I did it, I was just kind of like, I'm going to try this because this is what I have. I didn't have money, uh, money to spend. So it's like, what do I have yeah. in my hands that I can do something with? And that was these free books. And so that was what I did. And particularly before KU came out and, you know, the ecosystem very much changed, like it made an enormous difference to my visibility oh, yeah. uh, to have all those free books out there because, you know, it meant I, there was like no bar for people actually trying my stuff. Do you still have all those books free? Uh, I've, I've rotated, um, the first book of wishful, went back to paid for the first time in, since 2014, uh, I think back in November, because like, you know, eventually you reach a point where you have saturated the lists where I, you know, keep promoting mm-hmm. things. And so right now I'm on kind of a, I've got a rotation, a rotating schedule. And I think I have like four, four, well, 
more than that free right now because I got a book bub on something earlier this this week. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I have I have a website uh, page on my website that lists whatever my current freebies are. So there's always something for people to try. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that. What about the opposite? What did you ever have what you thought was like this super great, brilliant idea? And then it turned out to not be that great. I thought that building multiple series at once would be a great thing. Like, I mean, Me too. Right? I think you're my long lost cousin or something. Cause I keep going, yeah, I'm like that. I'm input. Yeah, yeah. I'm learner. <laughs> you know, I, thought, I thought it would be a good thing, you know, but it, it really just split my focus and meant that I built my fan base a bit slower than if I'd stuck with the same series and finished it in a consecutive fashion. But that said, from a creative standpoint, I needed the ability to cycle and to jump from one thing to another because otherwise I was getting bored. So I think you have to look at the payoff, like from a financial standpoint, okay, that was a little, uh, not so much, but from a personal creative standpoint, I think it was still the right call for me. Yeah. Yeah. What I found was I had this brilliant idea where I thought, okay, I'll have four series going and I'll have a release each quarter in each mm-hmm. series and that will make a wonderful mm-hmm. year. So mm-hmm. I tried nope, that. And that <laughs> no, I, I don't, I didn't write fast enough to do it. And by the time I finished one and got my brain out of one series and into another, it was so hard for me to transition. I like the break sometimes, but it was, it slowed me down to transition. Yeah. So that was what I had trouble with, but it's a great theory. Maybe somebody else will make it work. <laughs> I think it's something that would have worked in the old days before indie publishing, like when you had the way that traditional publishing worked for years and years and years, but indie publishing has, because things can be released quickly, it has completely changed the publishing landscape and reader expectations. And they want things more faster now. Yeah, very true. Yeah, that's true. So what changes, speaking of that, what changes have you seen in your genre or in the the writing world um, over the course of your career? Um, How have you adapted to them? Well, for one, romance has taken over indie publishing land and traditional publishing has mostly like thrown their hands up and relinquished it because they just can't compete, which is an enormous change because for years and years and years, romance is what kept the lights on in New York. Yeah. But, you know, because again, they keep making dumb decisions and we're over here like selling reasonably priced books and people are devouring them like candy. What are they going to do with that? Um, One of the other things, novellas that you know did not used to be a thing because they were not from a print base they don't make a lot of financial sense uh they've become a thing again short form fiction has really come back into its own in a way it can't uh in traditional publishing because traditional publishing is really the paper business and not the book business um i think things are since i started in this in in 2010 i mean there's just been exponential changes in the whole thing because it was very much that whole curve that you see with like the early adopters and the kind of going up and then we had that big boom around like 2012 2013 where you had people making like insane amounts of money and then the bubble burst and yeah. uh you know then there was that whole chicken little the sky is falling oh my god indie publishing is gonna die. i'm like no it's not y'all just chill <laughs> uh and as like I was like, it, it means we're going to have to change our tactics and how we do things. But that is the nature of the business because, I mean, this is, it's a tech business right? in a lot of ways. And so there's going to consistently be a lot of changes and the people who will survive are the ones who are willing to adapt right. instead of spending a bunch of time whinging about, you know, oh, it doesn't work the way it used to. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, yeah. lots of things don't. That's that's life. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do much about that. So as we wrap up, um, tell us what you think um, the one thing is that you've done to set yourself up for success in your career. Um, probably. So when I'm, you know, as because when I was first starting out and I was working the three jobs and whatnot, and time was extremely limited. I learned extremely early on that I cannot do all the things mm-hmm. and that I had to prioritize the thing that would make the needle move the most. And so for a long, long time, that meant I didn't worry about anything but the writing because obviously you can't promote something you haven't written. And then my next big thing, I focused on building my website, improving the look and feel. And then I focused on building a newsletter for several years. And like in our industry, there's a whole lot of people that are running around like chickens with their heads cut off because, you know, we're supposed to do all of these things. But it's just not realistic. And it's absolutely crazy making. So, you know, you really have to pick where you put your focus and spend concentrated work time on that thing. Learn to do it well instead of splitting your attention and doing a crappy job at a lot of things. And so I have less struggle with the shoulds and supposed tos because I had years and years and years and years ago learned I just can't do that. And so it's less crazy making. And so, you know, when I see other people having having a flail, I can wait in and be like, Honey, calm down. It's okay. <laughs> you say it with that southern accent, it helps too. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, Kate, tell people where they can find you. Um, they can find out more about me at my website, uh, katenolan.com. That's K A I T nolan.com. And all of my relevant links are there. Okay, all pretty right. good. And you're one, you're on all the platforms. I am. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks for being with us. This has been really fun. It has been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we enjoyed talking to you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.